Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. I'm Ty Windish, the producer of the Green Dot, and I'm here to introduce a conversation between Steve Boos and United States Air Force retired Lieutenant Colonel Ross Francamont about Ross's journey flying the U-2 for the Air Force, his incredible in-flight photography from the cockpit of the U-2, and much more, including some questions posed by the live audience of this Spirit of Aviation Week video interview. We just had to share it with you folks listening to the podcast because it is such a tremendous interview. So enjoy. Welcome to another Spirit of Aviation Week uh, special interview. Joining me right now is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Ross Frankenmount, and uh, he has flown the U-2 Dragon Lady for uh, 14 years, along with, I'm sure, a few other aircraft in the uh, in the inventory. And Ross, we want to uh, thank you for uh, joining us today in Spirit of Aviation Week, uh, and uh, you're coming to us from your house in uh, Lincoln, California. How's the weather out there today? That's right. Um, it's uh, it's not as hot as it's been. It's We've had a lot of days in the hundreds, but um yeah it's, it's still it's central valley california is still pretty hot but uh yeah all in all you know sunny day out here sounds good tell us a little bit about how you got involved in aviation um so i i, I grew up i was a, uh in a small town in north carolina uh called lenore and uh actually the first time i got on a plane i was four years old and my grandparents, actually, my grandpa got a job uh, running a battery factory over in Kenya. And um, the, uh, uh, one summer, they actually invited us out there. And so I was only four years old. So, and, and it's still very vivid in my memory, uh, that first time getting on an airplane. And uh, my dad, you know, he said, I looked up at him after we got on that plane and took off. And he said, and I, I basically told him, this is what I want to do when I grow up. Um, so fast forward a few years later, uh, about 10 years old, I went out to the Air Force Academy uh, with my family. We, uh, I went to my uncle's wedding in Colorado. We took a little uh, day trip down to Colorado Springs and visited the Air Force Academy. And I basically said, I, I want to go to the Air Force Academy uh, once I'm out of high school. And basically, I, I, I kind of pushed toward that. Um, I knew I wanted to be a pilot. I knew that that was one of the best uh, avenues to reach that goal. Uh, so 1995, I entered the Air Force Academy, uh, did four years there. I did, uh, uh, I got a degree in physics, emphasized in lasers and optics. And, um, after that, uh, graduated from there, I went on to, uh, undergraduate pilot training at Columbus Air Force Base. And, uh, out of that, uh, I, uh, got a C-21. So we were 35 over to Germany. And I think it's, you know, a lot of people's going to dream first assignment uh, to get the head out of the country, flying a Learjet. And uh, it was, uh, it, it really was a dream come true. I got, you know, uh, uh, you know, upgrade very quickly to aircraft commander and instructor and got to fly all around Europe and Africa and uh, Eastern Europe. And uh, one of the more interesting uh, missions that we did out there was we actually went down to an island and picked up uh, film that had been flown on the U-2. And uh, we'd come in right after the jet had landed. They'd take the film, and this is this is a wet film, which we still occasionally use. And uh, 
the, it's about two miles of film and they put, they put it in a canister and they put it on the C-21 and, uh, and then we'd fly it back to Ramstein where it either get flown back to the U S or developed there. And, uh, through that, I kind of I started talking to some uh, some of the U two pilots, and I'll never forget one of the uh, one of the first uh, times I got to talk to one of the U two pilots. He had just come out of the jet; he was still uh, um, still in his spacesuit, you know. And I basically I'm like I'm like, hey, what what was it like up there? And uh, he was like, man, I I saw things you wouldn't believe. And uh, and then he asked me, he's like, hey, do you do you want to be a U two pilot? Have you ever thought about that? And and I was thinking like. I, I know nothing about that. I probably probably have to be a fighter guy or something like that. And uh, he uh, he's like, no, you you know, if you got the hours, you can apply. So uh, I started looking into it. I kind of made that my next goal. And then in uh, 2004, I actually went out and interviewed. Uh, it's a it's a flying interview for the U2. It's uh, <laughs> you go out for two weeks, and you actually you get you uh, at the end of that two weeks, you end up flying uh, three flights in the U2, and they're these are uh, they are not easy flights at all. They're two and a half hour pattern sorties. And you just, you just do touch and go after touch and go after touch and go. And they basically, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of to see if you can follow the learning curve of the U2, which is very steep, uh, to learn how to land it. And it's amazing. You go from the first flight where it, you literally feel like you're back to, um, uh, back to pilot training, and uh, you know, you've never flown an air, aircraft before, and because the plane just doesn't do what you want it to do, you know what your brain is telling you it should be doing, it's doing something else. And uh, by the end of that third flight, you start pick up a little bit of the muscle memory, um, and uh, and they they uh, they felt like I, I was good enough to trainable, I guess, and they accepted me on in the YouTube program. So uh, I started there, two thousand five, uh, soloed. Um, so. Almost exactly uh, 15 years ago, it was the first part of August in um, uh, 2005. And uh, from there, uh, spent the next 14 years. I did have one break uh, where I was on a desk for three years in Hawaii. So that was another, you know, uh, uh, tough, tough gig that somebody had to do. And it had nothing to do with YouTube, but it was, uh, it, it was still a great gig. Um, but uh, for all the other time, I've been operational with U2. And uh, the last uh, actual four years of my career, I spent in the training squadron with U2. And uh, and that that was probably, you know, with, even with all the pictures and the great visuals and things like that and all the great missions I got to do that, you know, teaching other guys how to fly that plane, that was definitely, you know, for me, the one of the most rewarding aspects of my career in the Air Force. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it was you know a long road to get there, but uh, it was uh, it was totally worth it. It was I was you know one of the most memorable things that I'll have ever done in my life. Well, Ross, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about missions in the in the U two, but uh, we're also doing something. Uh, we're we're trying something out here. We're we're live uh, right now, uh, thanks to the the magic that is the internet. Uh, but we're also asking uh, folks who are watching if you're on uh, Facebook Live or YouTube. Uh, the comment section, go ahead. If you've got a question, um, go ahead and type it in, and we've got folks who are going to transcribe them, and we'll see if uh, we can get the relay system to work and, and uh, get some comments and, and uh, <laughs> questions from, from our uh, audience this afternoon. Uh, tell us a little yeah, bit certainly. about the, uh, the the typical mission. I mean, we've, many of us have seen YouTube footage of, of the takeoffs and landings of the, the Dragon Lady, and uh, the airplane is called that specifically because it is 
a little odd to fly, but as as a pilot, as you got used to it, uh, tell us a little bit about the the whole process from you know suiting up to uh, getting it back in the chocks at the end of the day. Um, so it, it definitely, obviously, one of the most unique aircraft that is out there. Um, and and for for us, a mission, it actually started pretty much the day prior because uh, you're you're going to be sitting in a spacesuit, you're going to be strapped into an ejection seat uh, for you know, nine, 10, 12 hours at a time, you're not gonna be able to get up or do anything like that. So you have to get yourself physiologically ready uh, to go on uh, a trip like that uh, in the jet. So you're, uh, you're eating right, everyone gets to know the body really well. <laughs> so um, uh, you, uh, you basically you have to show up, you know, obviously well rested, uh, and well fed. And uh, um, you typically you would show up about two hours prior to takeoff. Um, you know, you do all the all the normal pilot stuff. You know, so you have to check notams, you have to check weather, and all that kind of stuff. Because you know, you, you might be uh, miles above the uh, typical weather out there while you're on the mission, but you're going to have to take off and you're going to have to land uh, eventually, and you have to go through all that stuff. So um, you, you got to do all the normal pilot stuff, and you're actually you're you're meeting up with your chase car pilot who. Um, who's going to be driving the chase car and it's another U2 pilot. And, uh, and his job is, uh, you know, probably the biggest part of his job is that he has to be ready. If I come in and say, Hey, you know, my, my stomach's not going to take this mission today, uh, for whatever reason, um, he's got to be able to step in and actually fly the mission for me. Uh, so, uh, but we're basically meeting up. It's basically like a, a, a flight lead wingman kind of relationship with, with the uh, chase car pilot. Um, so he's supporting you uh, all along the the whole preparation for the flight. Um, the uh, around an hour or so prior to takeoff, you're actually you're going to separate the chase car pilot, who we actually call the mobile. He is going to uh, head out to the aircraft. He's going to take all your stuff, uh, and and he knows exactly how you want the the aircraft set up because you've told him and written it out for him. Um, and uh, and you know when you go. Uh, TDY with these guys for you know months on end. You get to know each other pretty well, know how people like stuff. So um, he's going to take everything out. He's going to do the full walk around of the aircraft. He's going to get everything ready uh, inside the aircraft. Um, and on on a full mission, you know there might be uh, five or six different contractors worth of sensors on that equipment. They're all out there. You know this thing looks like they're preparing you know the space shuttle for launch because there's hoses everywhere. There's wires going everywhere on the aircraft and everyone's uploading stuff to their own, uh, sensors and checking them. Um, for me, it's, as a pilot, I'm going to head back and, uh, I'm going to start the process of getting in the spacesuit, And uh, that starts around an hour prior to takeoff. Um, and, uh, the, uh, for most of my time in the U2, it was actually, the rule was you, you had to be on oxygen an hour prior to takeoff. Um, they, we've made some modifications of the cockpit, and that's actually changed um, for the modified cockpits. You don't have to be on oxygen for an hour anymore, but most guys still try to get as much uh, close to an hour uh, breathing pure oxygen, and that's just to try to get rid of the nitrogen out of your system. Um, but that process basically starts with you're going to have to um, uh, take off the flight suit. You put on some kind of long underwear underneath. Uh, if you're going to be flying over a really cold area, you know, they, they always say dress to egress. So um, the, you'll, uh, the spacesuit doesn't provide a whole lot of thermal protection. So if you're you know, flying over the Arctic or something like that, 
you're probably you're going to put on some like long, you know, Patagonia thermal underwear or something like that. Um, the uh, you'll go out then. Uh, there's actually a team of uh, the spacesuit spacesuit technicians that are going to actually help you get into the spacesuit uh, and uh, the uh, PSPTS or physiological support and physiological training squadron. They they do all the maintenance on the spacesuit. They're the ones that put you in. They also do all the the preparing the seat kit and actually the ones that uh, strap you into the seat. So they're a very integral process, making sure the mission actually happens um, the way it's supposed to. But uh, a team of technicians are going to get you into the spacesuit. Uh, there's a supervisor watching the whole way. Uh, and because uh, it's obviously one mistake could be life threatening, you know, in, a, in an event of an emergency. Um, they get you in the suit. They, they, uh, they have to put the suit on, obviously the helmet, the gloves lock on. Um, and as soon as you lock that helmet on and close it down, you start, they start 100% oxygen. And that's kind of starts your, what they call your O2 time. Um, so you get, uh, you get locked in. They have to put a harness on you that's going to actually attach into the ejection seat. Um, and then they run through a, a, a series of tests, leak tests to make sure the suit isn't going to leak air. Uh, they can inflate it. Um, you know, because the suit's main job is there, you know, it's primarily to make sure you don't go hypoxic and also make sure you don't lose pressure uh, around your body. Um, and uh, that's what a full pressure suit essentially is going to, uh, it's just a little, little uh, cabin around you to make sure that uh, you don't get into a lethal zone with the, the air pressure around you. Um, for most of my time flying, the cockpits were set up where uh, they're only, when you're up at 70,000 feet, they're only pressurized about 29,000 feet. And uh, so when you're sitting in the spacesuit, that actually, uh, it's not inflated because you, you want to be able to move around and stuff like that. And your body's actually sitting at 29,000 feet. Um, and it's designed if the cabin were to say suddenly rapidly rise um, because of a leak or an ejection or something like that, the suit actually is going to lock in pressure at 35,000 feet around your body. So it'll keep you alive. Um, we all do it in the, uh, in the altitude chamber. We actually ride the altitude chamber to up to 75,000 feet or so. And it, um, uh, the, uh, let the suit actually keep you alive in the, you know, for real in the, uh, in the altitude chamber. So you get to see what it's like, uh, not a real comfortable experience. Um, but you basically, uh, once they, they finish all the tests, they're actually going to drive you out to the jet. We try to orchestrate this. So. You know, by the time the mobile is done with everything there uh, at the jet, you're ready to arrive. You get into the jet. Um, you're actually on a portable cooler at the time, and uh, uh, which is both providing air into your suit, cool air, and your oxygen that you're breathing. Um, that's going to be carried by one of the suit technicians behind you. Um, they then get to work. They put uh, strap you into the seat. Uh, supervisor comes on, makes sure that you are completely strapped in. There's no mistakes been made with, with that. Again, you know, I've, uh, there have been mistakes I've seen <laughs> luckily caught, you know, where some, you know, parachute riser wasn't connected, right. Things like that. Um, but, uh, the, uh, once all that's done, basically, you know, you, the mobile has been, he's as your wingman, he's got the jet ready to go. Um, you just take a few minutes, kind of orient yourself. Uh, and then when you give them the thumbs up, the, uh, they're going to take you off of that vent, put you on the aircraft vent. The uh, and it's it's probably one of the, the least comfortable parts of the whole process because you get put on the aircraft vent, but since there's no engine running yet, there is no vent. So uh, until you get the engine running, you have no air coming into the suit, and uh, 
it's, uh, you know, being in that suit, it, it traps your heat from your body so well, um, that, uh, the, uh, I, you know, in, in 10 to 15 minutes without air, you could easily be in like hypotherm or hypo, uh, uh, basically heat stroke kind of range, uh, or heat exhaustion. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's kind of critical that all this happens very quickly. Uh, the mobile is going to do one last check over you, um, after you're off the vent, make sure everything again is strapped in. He's going to close the canopy after you shaking your hand and, uh, he's going to get in the car. Um, and then it's pretty much from there, it's starting up engines, make sure all the systems are good to go. Uh, and then your, you know, your goal would be to hit the runway about your, your takeoff time. And, uh. For most of my time, again, it had to be, an, you had to have at least an hour uh, from that time you went on oxygen and you tried to orchestrate it. So all this would happen kind of seamlessly. There wasn't any big time where you had to just be sitting around doing nothing. Um, and uh, uh, you would take off. And uh, from there, you are, you're booting up systems. You're getting the, uh, all the sensors going. Um, you're usually on a, on a real-time data link. You're talking with, you know, a group of people that could be, uh, you know, half a world away. Uh, these data links are great because you could talk to them. It sounded like, you know, they're talking like me and you are talking here. And uh, they, uh, they're they basically, they're the ones running the mission, the, that aspect of it uh, from that end. Uh, and, uh, you know, and behind them, there's a team of, you know, it could be over a hundred people who are actually involved with the intelligence collection on this one mission. And, uh, you know, you, you look at some aircraft, you know, RC-135, stuff like that, and they have a, the, they talk with their back end. You know, our back end was a half a world away, um, but, you know, no less, you know, effective. And, that, you know, and they could bring people into the team that, you know, uh, something came up, they could bring an expert in and, and switch people in and out and stuff like that. But um, you'd be up for, uh, you know, like I said, 9, 10, 12 hours, whatever really the mission called for. Sometimes the missions need to be extended. Um, and, uh, you had to be, you know, you had to stay on top of, uh, you know, how much fuel you had, how much, uh, you know, how much time you could actually, uh, be there. You know, if you're having to travel a ways or a lot of missions, you know, I went, uh, had to, uh, fly for, you know, two and a half hours just to reach, uh, the area where we're going to be collecting on. Um, and, uh, so you had to always keep that in the back of your mind that, you know, I'm going to have to fly this thing back, you know, two and a half hours home. I have to keep an eye uh, on, uh, on my fuel and, uh, and also on myself, you know, so it's, uh, 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 make sure I'm, you know, physiologically up for, for, uh, for doing that. And, uh, uh, it, you know, I'd say some of these missions were, were totally, uh, where I, I had to be totally focused on helping out people on the ground and you're helping, you know, there are army troops on the ground, there's JTACs and we're working closely with certain operations going on in the ground. Uh, and, uh, you know, and then there, there are other missions that, uh, we had more of a hands-off approach. There's a lot, it's just collecting, uh, they're taking the imagery and, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's the, the mission's kind of running itself. Uh, and I don't have to be as involved with, uh, everything that's going on. So, um, to get done with, uh, you, you're coming back home, uh, preparing everything. Usually by the end of 10 hours, the cockpit is a complete disaster zone of boards and pencils and things like that. And, and, uh, I, I had my camera, of course, uh, you know, but it's, you know, you get, get everything kind of prepped, uh, put away. Um, you have to start down, uh, about 25 minutes or so, uh, 
takes about 25 minutes, 25 to 30 minutes to descend and land uh, from altitude. And uh, so you, you basically come in on uh, come in for landing. Uh, normally on, on a mission, we're gonna you know we're not practicing any kind of emergency stuff or anything anything like that. So we're gonna be our, our full flaps and uh, all of our drag out and. Uh, uh, we're going to try to make a nice, you know, nice straight in landing normally. And uh, um, that chase car pilot, who the mobile, um, who, uh, you know, throughout the whole mission, his job is actually also to kind of uh, be monitoring what's going on at home. Uh, and, you know, and, and say there's a big front coming in and it's going to make the crosswinds go out of limit, uh, which 15 knot crosswind wind limit for the jet. Um, you know, he needs to be able to be like, hey, we need to recall him back home or he needs to start max endurance to save fuel because it's going to be a, a couple extra hours up there you know you know that's part of his job as well to uh, kind of be on it on that end um but uh when i'm coming to land his job is but he's going to be there uh beside the runway and then uh there's a lot of footage you've probably seen on youtube i got some on my website and everything that of uh, the uh, uh the mobile running in on the aircraft and his job is is it's kind of like uh kind of like i would say performing like a turning rejoin on an aircraft, uh, you're using visual uh, visual cues on the aircraft, and you're accelerating, turning, using the angles to uh, uh, to maneuver the car. So you're just he's gonna you know at the last minute it's gonna lag just behind the aircraft, and you know hopefully drop in around 50 to 100 feet right behind the aircraft, and uh, and then he's gonna make calls um, uh, from about 10 feet down uh, to help the aircraft land, and you know. Part of that is because you know the aircraft is set up with a, it's a bicycle gear, so there's a uh, there's a center main gear and there's a tailwheel, so probably one of the last tail draggers uh, out there operating uh, in the Air Force. Um, but uh, the uh, uh, when you're coming down final, that tail is is quite a bit higher. If you're looking at it from the side, the tail is higher than uh, than the main gear, and you have to land on the tailwheel first. So what that the way you you do that is the chase guard pilot. He's gonna uh, he's gonna be uh, looking at your main gear mainly, and uh, he's gonna be calling that from ten feet down. So ten, uh, he's gonna basically be calling ten, eight, six, uh, and and so forth down. And the way that he says that gives me a lot of information. You know, if he if he says ten, six, two, you know, I know I'm like I'm screaming at the ground, um, uh, and you know, and eventually, you know. Uh, they, uh, uh, we say, you know, the mobile goes from advisory calls, which, you know, he's just advising my altitude to directory calls, which either saying, hold it off, you know, uh, right rudder, left rudder, whatever. Cause you know, since you're on that bicycle while you're having to keep the main gear from crashing into the runway, you can got that, that tail gear back here. If tailwind's going to, or the uh, crosswind's going to blow, uh, uh, blow your tail out. So you're actually going to nose into the wind. And uh, so you have to counteract that with the with the rudder to keep that that bicycle straight. Um, and uh, so uh, you know while you're doing that, you're obviously uh, you're having to also work the wings. You got 50 feet of wing on each side of you. It's over 105 foot uh, wingspan. Um, you know, so you get, you're trying to keep those wings level. Um, and uh, as you're uh, you're coming down again, you're try, you're going to try to get that main gear to two feet, and then you're going to try to hold it at two feet. And uh, the the mobile is going to hopefully just be calling two feet, two feet. You know, if he calls three feet, you know, okay, I'm, I'm rising up a little bit. I need to kind of let the jet settle back down. Um, 
you know, our face calling inches, hold it off. I'm going to have to do something to get the aircraft back in the air. Because, uh, you know, the worst thing is, is to land on the main gear first, because uh, that, what that's going to do is going to rebound the jet back into the air. And uh, a lot of times, you know, we talk about you, you learn about PIOs, you know, and, and uh, you know, even, you know, in, in the most b- basic of uh, pilot training uh, scenarios, you learn about, you know, how pilot count, trying to counteract an, op, an action and just making it worse. And that's exactly what happens in the UT. If you bounce on the main gear, you're just going to bounce and then you're going to bounce again even more. And then you're going to be, uh, you're going to be up in the air, uh, you know, six feet in the air and the jet's going to completely stall in, and then you're going to break something. So, uh, so, you know, the, the, uh, when you're flying this aircraft, it's, this is a, um, this is a, uh, you know, about a $20 million airframe itself. Uh, you know, pretty low in Air Force, uh, you know, toy standards. But uh, when you put all these sensors on, which some of these sensors are, are state of the art, there's brand new stuff out of the box, you know, um, being developed. And there's more new stuff being being developed today. Um, these sensors, you know, could be worth $250 million each, you know. And uh, um, you come in and do a bad landing, suddenly you've broken a, you know, a, a focal plane that had to be grown from a crystal that took a year to, to grow. And, uh, you know, and that, that focal plane was $50 million itself, you know? So, um, it's, uh, it was really, uh, really imperative that you, you did not <laughs> break the sensor. That was the biggest thing. You know, and, uh, uh, get the jet jet down safely, obviously getting yourself safely, but, uh, you definitely, you don't want to break any of that equipment. So you're, um, you get in the jet to you get it to two feet. You get the the uh, as you're holding it there, as you know, the angle of attack is going to keep. Uh, you're going to have to increase the angle of attack as you slow down, uh, just to keep the jet flying. And uh, as you increase that angle of attack, that tail is going to drop. And uh, to, from the mobile perspective, he sees the tail will go from being above the main to level with the main to being below the main. Uh, and that's about the time the jet's ready to land. And then you, you just put it down softly. Uh, again, keeping it straight and keeping the wings level and also trying to keep it on the center line. Uh, it, it really is a, a juggling act and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of comical and scary when you're teaching you guys how to fly this, watching them try to put this all together. Uh, and I, I know from myself, I remember how it was, um, but, uh, it, it really is, uh, it really is a juggling act, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and even once you're on the ground, it's, uh, some of our, our, Times we've taken jets off runways have been once we've been on the ground where suddenly a gust of wind will suddenly you know make you do a ground loop or whatever and uh, so you have to keep flying the aircraft you know all the way down to a stop uh, so it's uh, it, it really is a, it, it, I tell people this and with all seriousness you know because I've flown a lot of aircraft and uh, you get pretty comfortable in the aircraft after a while and I'd say it's uh, you you know things like landing and stuff they you know you're, they're still serious but you kind of you're comfortable bring it in. Uh, you know, I know that the C-21, uh, T-38, all those, you know, they're, they're, uh, you know, it may not be the prettiest landing, but you're never really, I, I would say your, your blood's not pumping really fast. Um, but the U-2 with almost 2000 hours in it, I'm still sweating as I'm coming down final in that, uh, even though you know, I'm literally only going 75 to 80 knots and, uh, you know, but I know I have this aircraft that can easily hurt me in an instant, uh, or I could break something, you know, uh, so, uh, and it, it was, it was really, it was, it was, you know, a great, it was a pilot's, uh, airplane. Um, all these controls were, you know, basically you say stick and rudder. We actually had a yoke and rudder. So, 
Um, they're all cable controlled. Uh, you're when you're fighting the wind, you're literally fighting the wind uh, out there, and uh, it's it's giving you immediate feedback right through those controls. And uh, and as I told my students when I was teaching, I'm like, you're you're either flying the plane or it's flying you. And uh, and if you're sitting there doing nothing with the controls, the plane is going to be flying you all around the sky. Uh, so you you are it's is it is a constant fight. And when they call it the Dragon Lady, it uh, it's it's no joke. So it it flies great at altitude, performs like a sports car at you know sixty five thousand feet uh, down low to the ground. It is it is a wrestling match. You know you're wrestling the dragon every time. So. A typical t- tail dragger. It's not done flying until it's in the chalks, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We have uh, we have some questions that have been submitted by uh, some of our viewers. If if you're watching on Facebook or uh, YouTube, uh, go ahead and, and jump onto the comment section and and uh, go ahead and ask some questions. So, um, uh, let's see, uh, Brian Huberty, who's watching on YouTube, uh, wants to know why the uh, Air Force is still flying the U2s because many thought the uh, Global Hawk would make U2s obsolete, but uh, it's kind of not not been the case. <laughs> you know, I, I, I would, I would say that, uh, the global hawk was, a, was, it's a great concept. Um, I mean, it was, uh, obviously I don't speak for the air force, obviously. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, and I, I have a slightly biased opinion, obviously against the unmanned aircraft. Uh, but you know, it, it really, it, it, the global hawk could fill a really, uh, important, uh, capability out there. I think that it was kind of implemented. Uh, it could have been implemented better. They uh, they kind of sold it as more than what it was capable of uh, initially. Uh, and uh, the uh, the the biggest thing is that the U two is you know everyone talks about being an old plane, but really it's just it's it is a capability to carry sensors up to a high altitude that where they can collect from a long range um, and. Uh, and one of the biggest things, you know, the U two has uh, a big engine. It can go, it can go high up, and then uh, it has um, a very big, uh, big generators as well that can power lots of equipment. Um, we got into something like the Global Hawk. I know that there were, uh, you got power issues, um, you know, and things like uh, things like a radar camera, you know, that's that are taking pictures with using radar signals, um, you know that. The resolution of that that image and how far you can collect is directly correlated by how much power you can put behind it. Um, so, you know, something like the U two is just is just built to be able to provide that capability, and uh, you know, and it's not really as uh, there there is a big aspect of it, man versus unmanned. I know there were a lot there were, were a lot of uh, times where having a person in the cockpit basically meant that we were going to collect properly versus uh i think if someone wasn't in the cockpit um and uh but really it's, it's just the capability that the u2 brought to the table and uh whereas i know that the air force for years had basically said the u2 is going to go it's on the chopping block and stuff like that it it was really you know us going out there and being involved in these operations in afghanistan you know in the oif oef uh and uh in korea and all, all these other uh, hotspots around the world, and it's these—it's the geographic commanders in those areas, you know, the four stars in, in charge that basically said, "You're not going to take away my U2. It's it's too important to me and to what I'm doing." You know, so it's it's not a political thing. It's you know, it's not to make make a certain you know manufacturer happy. It's just the U2 is providing me with 
with what I need right now. And you cannot take that away until you find something that can do as well uh, with that. So, um, so kind of kind of a long answer to uh, the, the but the Globock it, it it definitely represents something that could provide a very valuable service uh, out there. But it just it was never going never designed to be and never going to be a full replacement for the U two. Great. We're talking with Lieutenant Colonel Ross Frankemont, uh, spent 14 years uh, flying the U-2. And uh, a couple of other questions. We've got uh, this one from uh, Facebook. Uh, Andy Swanson would like to know, how many orbits around the Earth do you think you've made? <laughs> oh, man, I, you know, I, I don't know how many. Uh, I, I, have a, I have around uh, just shy of 2,000 hours, and I, I'm, I'm so mad I, I ended up with literally within 10 hours of, two, of uh, 2,000 hours in the U2. Um, but, uh, you know, averaging that out, I don't know. So uh, uh, we'll say, you know, at least probably 25 times around the Earth, you know. But, uh, the, you know, obviously and that's just kind of multiplying out how fast the jet goes with uh, how many hours I've had in it. Um, obviously, you know, some of the, the low-altitude training stuff is obviously slower. Um, but, uh, I can tell you that there are certain parts of the world that I've seen many more times than I would ever want to see probably. Um, uh, but, uh, the, uh, you know, the big thing on the, on that is that you, even when you're over a like war zone, uh, from 70,000 feet, it, everything looks beautiful. still. you know, even though you're in a, a dusty, uh, a dusty deserty area, um, it, it's still beautiful to be able to look down on the earth from, uh, from 70,000 feet, so. Uh, YouTuber Time Space wants to know about uh, altitude speeds and uh, your longest mission. <laughs> just um, the, just the so, declassified stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, the, uh, um, so it, it, I know that we, we can say that the U2 flies above 70,000 feet. That's the, kind of the unclassified version of that. Uh, and uh, um, as far as speed, we're typically typically it's not a fast jet. Uh, we're not like the SR seventy one, and uh, because of those long straight wings, uh, we can't really it's you can't really get into the much of the transonic region. So um, that typically we're flying about 0.7 Mach, uh, uh, which you know at altitude you're uh, looking at around four hundred knots true, um, and uh, the, uh, which, which is funny, you know, when, when you're looking at indicated airspeed versus true airspeed at um, 400 knots true at 70,000 feet uh, translates to around 100 knots indicated. So uh, you'll, you'll actually be in like 98, 99 knot indicated airspeed and you're going 400 knots. Uh, and uh, uh, typically, not, a, not usually a whole lot of wind up there. Uh, so that's typically not a factor. I think about the most I've seen up there is about 50 to 60 knots, and that was kind of rare. Usually you're looking at less than, you know, 10, 10 knots or less of actual wind. So uh, wind isn't a huge factor on your ground speed. Um, but uh, but that's basically uh, the speeds there. My longest mission, I can tell you, was about 12 and a half hours. Uh, that's what it, it was. Actually, I, I went out knowing that it was going to be um, about that long. I've had a few that came close where I had one that was, a, it's supposed to only be about a nine hour flight and turned it into 11 and a half, uh, from, a, a divert from crosswinds. And, uh, and then, it, and then it turned into an emergency, emergency at the end where my fuel stopped feeding properly. 
uh, and uh, um, it ended up working out okay. I thought I was going to lose the engine for a little bit, but uh, it, uh, you know, having to go in at night in a strange place, doing a, a spiral down, you know, what they call an FO pattern or, or a, you know, flame out pattern, or a actually a precautionary where you're just prepared for the engine to quit. Um, that was a, you know, it was an interesting experience, especially coming in, you know, at 11 and a half hours after I took off, which, you know, if you, you, you then add in the fact that I actually got in the spacesuit an hour prior to that. So, you know, I've been in the spacesuit for 12 and a half hours, uh, by the time I was on the ground there. Um, and, uh, yeah, you, you, you have to, you know, and like I said, taking care of your physiological needs, making sure you're physically able to go. is no joke in that. Cause we've had missions lost, you know, where you, uh, if, if guys weren't up for that, or your body just couldn't take it, you know? So, um, so it was all, always a big thing. You had to, had to make sure you were mentally and prepared, you know, ready to, uh, head on that mission. You never knew when it was going to turn into something like that. Well, you mentioned a 12 hour mission. Um, how do you keep yourself hydrated during that mission? I mean, can you eat or drink anything while, while you're in the suit? Yeah. So the, uh, um, uh, we w- we would bring along uh, bottles of water. They they had these big wa- bottles with a big long straw. Um, I should get some of those as a prop. That's good. Reminds me, but uh, the uh, um, in the side of the uh, the spacesuit helmet, there's a little hole right on the bottom right hand side. It's, uh, and it was uh, you could stick a straw up in there or a, a um, for for water. You actually turn it upside down. You can drink water like that. Uh, or we had tube food, just like you think about like astronauts uh, eating. And, uh, we had a whole menu of those and you'd actually pick out your, your spread for the day, you know? So I, I usually did some chicken a la king. Uh, I liked the truffle Mac, uh, and, uh, you know, there was a, a caffeinated apple pie. We also had caffeinated chocolate pudding. Um, and, uh, you know, you could, you could pick out, you know, some, some guys would go up with like three of these things for a 10 hour mission. Some guys would go up with like 12 things of food. Um, some guys would bring along, you know, a bottle of water for every hour. Um, I was somewhere in between about every two hours. I, you know, but you, I was during the mission, you had to keep yourself, uh, in good shape. Uh, and that, that did involve drink, making sure you're, you're staying hydrated and, uh, and that you're at least eating something every once in a while. So, um, we, we also did have some on for the longer missions. We also did have some help from some, uh, I would say some, some pharmaceutical type stuff that they would give us in a, uh, it was in a, a nice candy gel, uh, form. Um, and, uh, that, uh, that was, that was pretty good stuff, but, uh, um, that would keep you nice and alert and on top of things. So, um, but, uh, the, uh, as far as, you know, obviously drinking all that water, got to go somewhere. Uh, we did, we did wear a device called the UCD urinary collection device. And that, uh, you could, uh, you could go, uh, go number one, uh, as much as you needed to really. Um, and, uh, but there was, there was none of the other, none of the other stuff. So, um, the, uh, uh, that was one of the things you had to make sure you're, you're ready to go and you're, you're eating the right foods, uh, beforehand. And, uh, you, you got to know your body really well. And some, you know, some, some pilots on you, they could, they could probably go to like a chili dog eating contest and, go fly a 12 hour mission the next day and be perfectly fine. And some people were practically starving themselves. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I was somewhere in between if I eat some nice, you know, have something like chicken and rice the night before and eat some eggs in the morning and I was, you know, pretty good to go. Um, but, uh, yeah, you, you definitely had to stay on top of all that stuff. 
Well, we've been seeing some of the uh, photos that you've taken from uh, altitude. How did you get an, interested in photography to start with? Um, you know, I, I would say that that when I came to the U2, there, there were uh, there were several guys who, were, who had been in the program for a long time, who had been been taking some really awesome photos from the U2. And uh, I would say, yeah, pretty much everyone when they go up in the U2, they bring they bring a camera um, and uh, to get some shots because you know I when I when I first going up, I was taking this little Canon Power Shot. You know, it was like a little hundred dollar uh, digital camera. And, uh, you know, even a camera like that looked amazing, you know, from 70,000 feet and would, uh, you know, you could see some curvature and see the, the atmosphere and, and, um, and, you know, I started looking at, you know, I, I could really, you know, if I started kind of studying this, you know, photography from, you know, from the aspect of learning some of the principles of photography and, uh, learn how to capture it and the lighting and the setting, you know, and everything that maybe I could produce some of these, you know, photos, like some of the, I would say some of my photographic mentors had produced before me. And, uh, so, um, you know, I, I didn't get a, a nice camera, I would say in the YouTube program for about three or four years. And, uh, um, after that I started, you know, I, I just, I taught myself a lot, uh, uh, about again, those settings and how to get the right, the right look, you know, and I, I, you know, I, I would, I would have to, just like anything you're trying to learn, you go and you then kind of grade yourself. And I look at them like, you know, I didn't, I don't like how those, the, the reflections turned out in the window and stuff like that. Let me see what I can do next time to actually, uh, to improve that. Um, and, uh, you know, and this is, this is most of this work was done on, on, um, you know, training flights where I'm going up and, you know, and, I, and I'm not, you know, I'm not foregoing flying the aircraft, but, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to learn this as well while I'm up there. And, uh, so it, it was, uh, it was really just kind of a process of kind of, you know, I could make this look even better. I could do this. I can, uh, you know, when it, in my last couple of years, I started taking what the, you know, trying to, what they call panoramic, you know, a composite panoramic where I take like several photos and then combine them all together to make, uh, you know, an even larger view of what I'm looking at. And, uh, you know, and there, and there, there's an artistic aspect to that, obviously. And, uh, the, uh, that they're, they're showing that the, the eclipse photo, uh, that came up, that's obviously a composite of, uh, using a lot of shots of the sun and the moon there, um, uh, over on, on another, uh, wide angle shot, you know, so I, I started looking at things like doing like that, that would, uh, uh, you know, it, some of them they obviously exaggerate the curve that I'm seeing, uh, and that a lot of that's more for uh, artistry of the, of the shot and the way the panoramic actually kind of puts it together. Um, but you know, it's no joke. You're you're actually when you're up there, you were seeing the the full curvature of the Earth around you and stuff. So um, the uh, uh, you know, I I it was really just a process trying to show show that off. And you know, and my my whole goal is you know, like you know, I'm seeing this amazing this amazing view, and I'm like. I want, I want my friends, I want my family and I want all them to, to be able to experience this as well. And, um, you know, in the last few years that some of that, you know, started going viral, uh, some of the photos out there and, uh, picked up by the aviationist and then CBS news picked up a, a thing, you know, when I flew through the Northern lights and, uh, um, you know, but I, I would say that all the, those steps I took, they were all deliberate, um, you know, you know, it, none of them just happened by happenstance. 
Um, the uh, you know the Northern Lights uh, photos are a good example of you know I had, I had prepared for that flight for about two years, and that involved you know uh, knowing exactly the time of year to do it. The you know I knew you know the basic flight route. I knew where I was going to be experiencing Northern Lights, and I actually got the equipment that I currently use is was all bought with the entire intention of eventually capturing those Northern Lights. So I knew I needed a camera that had a really good uh, low light capability and a lens also that had, that could, that could pick up low light and end up going with a, you know, a, my, my Nikon D750 and I have a, a Tokina 16 to 28 millimeter, uh, 2.8, uh, lens. And, uh, and those combined, you know, allowed me to, you know, be able to, to get these shots, which, you know, when you're shooting from a, a, a moving aircraft, you know, especially things like stars, things like that. So any kind of movement is going to throw off the picture. Um, but you also need to have a long enough exposure to pick up that light. Uh, so, uh, it was, it was a compromise of playing with the settings, finding out what, what settings actually work, uh, in that case. Um, and, uh, you know, and some of it, it's, you know, it took flights, previous flights where I, you know, did some night flights and things like that. And I went out and kind of practiced some of the techniques, uh, and then found, okay, yeah, that one didn't work. This one worked well. Um, I need to, I need to concentrate on my focus a little bit more because I really, you know, I came up with a bunch of slightly blurry photos and stuff. Uh, and, uh, it was, uh, it was really a process and I knew I, I was going to build up to eventually fly that flight. I wasn't sure exactly the, the day I just knew I, I needed to get it obviously in the winter to be able to see the Northern lights. Um, and, uh, and it, it all kind of came together. Fortunately, uh, also I didn't know if the, you know, I knew that I'd probably see some, but I didn't know how spectacular it was going to be and it, and it was really it was with you know of all the the amazing uh kind of sites from the u2 getting to fly through that was that was right up there at the top um and uh you know and it, we we actually had a, a a system i think it was a garmin connect or garmin home i can't remember uh it was a a, a one of the gps in the that we i brought along for the flight uh communicate with satellites to kind of keep a position uh, of the aircraft that other people could be able to track me on this flight. And, uh, it also allowed some texting capability, you know, just simple text and stuff like that. And, and from my iPad, which was strapped onto my knee, and I was at, using a stylus able to text my wife, you know, right, uh, right in the middle of the flight. And I was like, it's like, this is amazing. Yeah. This, uh, uh, this is incredible. And, uh, it was, uh, you know, it, it, part of the time I, I just had to kind of sit there and just kind of, marvel at it and just watch it you know and then i'm and i'm back to like i'm like i really i want to kind of cat i want to be able to capture this and you know and it was my whole goal going in and uh because i knew lots of people that had flown this flight before and this this wasn't that rare of a flight but it was something i had never done in my 14 years with u2 and uh so i went in went into it blind just knowing that guys were like hey yeah the northern lights are spectacular i've never never been able to get a picture of it I don't know how you get a picture of it. I don't think a camera can capture that kind of stuff. And so I kind of made that my challenge, like, okay, I'm going to capture it. And I, I'm going to try to, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't know how it's going to turn out, but we'll, we'll see. And, uh, and that's, yeah, uh, yeah, that's basically, uh, how that came about. That was, that was kind of, I would say my, my like coup de grace of, of my photographs in the YouTube. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was all a process and it was all planning, uh, to get to that point. And your photography has also been recognized by National Geographic as well. You mentioned CBS News earlier as well. Yeah. 
Um, yes, uh, yeah, actually, uh, Air and Space magazine, um, that Eclipse uh, photo that had uh, uh, I I just entered in on a whim to see uh, 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 to see what they would think, and ended up winning one of the contests with the Air and Space magazine. And then they afterwards they got together with me and they they said, hey, we'd like for you to do a story about that photo and how how it came about. Um, and uh, you can actually read that story. It's it's up. It's both on my website ex at extremeross.com uh, or over at the Aerospace Magazine uh, uh, about flying through the eclipse. And that again, you know, the whole preparation for going on that. Uh, it was a. I actually kind of I would say I brought too much stuff. I, I tried to do a little too much, but uh, you know, I'm still happy with the way it turned out. But you can read in the story about how uh, I, I thought I was got nothing and. Uh, uh, everything kind of went wrong right at the wrong time uh, on that flight, um, but uh, yeah, they, they asked me to to write him something uh, for that, and and actually, uh, I got around to finally writing that, and it was right after I flew the Northern Lights flight, which that happened about six months after I did the Eclipse flight, um, and uh, I was uh, you know I fl I'd flown to England on the Northern Lights flight, and. I, I had crashed at about four o'clock in the afternoon because I was, you know, dead tired after the the twelve hour flight or so, and um, I woke up at about you know one o'clock in the morning and like you know I'm just going to write this thing out. So I banged it out on my phone uh, and sent it over to uh, the the person I've been working with at uh, Air and Space, and uh, they they liked it and uh, eventually got it published. It took a while because it actually took until I retired before we could actually publish it, um, but uh, but we did get that published and. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm very happy with how things turned out overall, and uh, you know, and, I, and I'm still trying to learn today. I'm still working on my photography. I'm working on videography now. I'm thinking, you know, looking at trying to step up doing some video production, and uh, um, and also, you know, helping out in my community here. I'm doing some real estate uh, photography stuff and uh, helping out some of the lo local realtors uh, as well uh, as well around here. You know, and even with that, I'm learning. The proper way to shoot a, a room, you know, and, and there's a lot to get, that goes into that as well. Um, so it, it's, you know, it's still growth, you know, trying to learn new things and just get better uh, and to really kind of try to be the best. Uh, if I'm going to take it up, I might as well try to be the best, you know, at least give it the best effort. You mentioned your website, uh, Extreme Ross. Uh, tell us a little bit uh, just quickly about uh, what, what we'll find there and uh, how people can get in contact with you. Um, so it, it, the basic website right now, it's just uh, extremeross.com, um, to go over there. I, I, I've been working on building this over the last, uh, the last couple months, uh, had some downtime, uh, cause I'm, I'm currently, I'd retired back in, uh, March of 2019. And, uh, in April, I started working for a major airline. Uh, currently I'm, uh, uh not flying a whole lot with that airline. And uh, come October, I probably will not uh, not be receiving a paycheck from them anymore either. Uh, so I started kind of building up this website, extremeross.com, and it's really it's it's kind of grown, and I'm I'm still kind of changing what I'm doing with it. But uh, from there, you're going to be able to you can basically see most of my photos uh, that I've taken from the YouTube. Um, you can see that I have a lot of T38 photos as well. Um, and uh, the big thing I've actually been doing on Instagram lately, uh, I'm Extreme Ross over on Instagram as well, um, 
is uh, what they call Ask Extreme Ross. So kind of like you've been having people ask questions here. So I've kind of thrown it out for people on Instagram to uh, come over and ask questions. Um, and I have, a big, I have a big list of questions uh, and I try to get to those. Uh, I don't get to one every day. Uh, lately, it's probably been more like once a week, but uh, I do. I am running through those and I, and I try to I try to provide some kind of insight into you know into uh, you know what might be a simple question. I try to provide some insight, and I know most people don't use Instagram for that. You know, it's mostly the photos, but I try to provide a photo and a you know a, a pretty good you know uh, uh, I guess uh, description of what's going on, and you know, and a little you know sometimes a little bit flowery, uh, uh, but uh, you know, trying trying to give people the experience and, you know, both the pictures and the words. And then I, I'll usually, I'll throw that, whatever I've answered on Instagram, I'll throw it on my website as well on a section for Ask Extreme Ross. Excellent. Um, it's also, yeah, it's also, you can, uh, for any of the people in the local area around Lincoln and Roseville and Sacramento. Um, so the, there's also links to my, what I'm kind of branching out into get working with doing, uh, video production, 3D tours and real estate photography and stuff like that. So it's, you know, and I'm probably at some point I'm going to separate those two, but right now uh, I'm just uh, working off of one website that uh, you can find it all. And, and almost all, almost all the photos, I would say you can, you can link to them to download full resolution for free. I don't, I don't charge anything uh, for most of the, of the uh, photography out there. Great. Well, Ross, we appreciate you taking uh, time to visit with us and tell us a little bit about the U2 and share those uh, amazing photos that uh, that you took uh, at Altitude. And uh, we really appreciate it, uh, again, as you share your spirit of aviation with all of us. And uh, have, a, have a great night. I'm Steve Bush. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot.